Welcome to the Higher Learning Podcast with me, Oz Rashid. Our podcast focuses on the one thing every business leader must excel at when building a high-performance team, effective hiring. Identifying high performers that fit your team is not just an HR responsibility. It impacts every area of the business and all hiring leaders in your company. We're here to have an honest and entertaining conversation with different business leaders from a variety of industries to learn about new ways of identifying and engaging top talent in today's business environment. I'm your host, Oz Rashid. Welcome to another episode of Higher Learning. I am your host, Oz Rashid. I'm actually coming to you from a different location today. I'm here at the Nashville Entrepreneurial Center at the Chase Studio with our partners here at the EC here in Nashville. Really excited to bring on a very special guest, David Liu. David Liu is the co-founder and CEO of Clarity Movement. We've been doing a lot on climate tech recently, and I've been very excited about this pod. David, how are you doing today? Pretty good. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. So I, I want to jump right into it because I know people are interested in this space in particular and want to learn a little bit more about your company. So as the co-founder and CEO of Clarity, a San Francisco-based climate tech startup in 2000, founded in 2014, I want to know a little bit more about the company. Can you tell us a little bit about where you're at maturity-wise, a little bit about the mission, and then ultimately the vision of the company for those who might not be familiar with the organization? Clarity is a climate tech startup that's in the growth stage that's tackling air pollution so around the world. So our vision is to empower the world to reduce air pollution. And the way we are doing so is to make the data accessible and actionable hmm. for the stakeholders to take actions in reducing air pollution. Love it. And listen, climate change, air pollution, this is a really important topic. And it's one that I think has taken on a life of its own over the last 10 to 15 years in a very, very positive way. Is this an area that you knew you wanted to pursue from a very young age? Or was there maybe a seminal moment or tipping point that kind of drove your passion in this space? And excuse me of my naivete here, but I believe Shanghai, where you're from, there's a lot of air pollution there. I grew up in Los Angeles. There's a lot of air pollution there. So was this something that even in your youth, you recognized as an issue and that you wanted to tackle? Yeah, I think my passion around the environment is really started when I was young. I would remember the days back then I would wake up in the morning and then I would look out in a window and I would see this foggy air outside, sure. right? And then back in the days I was thinking, oh, I just fog. But now I realize actually probably that was the smog. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a huge difference. And I think now China has done a great job of improving the air pollution, but back then definitely a huge problem, still a big challenge. Nowadays, actually 95% of the world populations, according to WHO, is breathing unhealthy air every single day. And that's causing 7 million premature deaths every year. Oh man. And I think my personal experience with the problem and just the extent of the damage this problem is doing currently is what drove me founding the Clarity Movement. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because like I said, I grew up in Southern California and Los Angeles and it was funny because on certain days, the air quality wouldn't be what it needed to be. You know, I could see the mountains some days and I couldn't see them other days, but I didn't really know what that had to do with climate or pollution or global warming. And then I moved to Arizona and that might have more issues now, but at the time it was a lot more clear and it made such a stark yeah. difference. I also went to Mexico City very recently. And so that's another area with a lot of cars 
it's interesting as a topic that has become very important. And the fact that it drove you and like all entrepreneurs, you have an obsession with something and you want to tackle this problem and solve it. I find that to be super admirable. And we're going to get into that a little bit more because I want to understand the actual technology. But we did talk about climate equity when we first connected. And that wasn't a term I really fully understood until we chatted. So help me understand and help our listeners understand what climate equity is and then why that's important. Climate equity essentially refers to the fair and just distribution of the benefits and burdens related to climate change. And I think that's specifically around air pollution. It highlights kind of the disparity in exposure to harmful air pollutants among different communities. So historically speaking, I think a lot of the highly polluted facility was put into a place that may be closer to community with economic disadvantage, and that's unfortunately usually associated to minority in terms of race communities. So what we essentially now seeing is in this country, especially in the US, you see this marginalized and lower income community often bear the burden of air pollutions due to their proximity to the air pollution source compared to, let's say, a very well-off community. So when we're talking about climate equity, when we're thinking about introducing newer fleet of transportations into the community, pushing in better policies that will result in a lower emissions, we want to be very aware the benefits of that is equally distributed, particularly for those that has been disproportionately affected in the past. What a important topic and perspective, right? I mean, we look at, there's all different types of systematic oppression that disenfranchise groups, minorities. At the end of the day, like I'm a big believer in equality of opportunity, not necessarily equality of outcome. But to have that equality of opportunity, we all have to be starting from the same starting line. And I don't think that I always looked at it from a climate perspective, but the right to breathe fresh air and to be able to drink clean water and to have these things that are just kind of natural for many other communities, the communities that have more resources at the end of the day, there's a lack of disparity there. And I think it's so admirable that you want to bring a little more equity to that. And I don't think that's a topic that a lot of people think about. And I'm glad we're talking about it. I got to tell you, as somebody that I do, I care about our earth. I care about our environment. As I've learned more about these movements over the past decade, it's something that I've personally gotten more involved in. And I got to be honest, I was frustrated with a lot of the progress even two to three years ago. But I got to say that at a national and global level, it feels like to me, that there's been some progress over the last few years. And obviously there's still a long way to go, but I'm interested. I'm not in the weeds like you are day to day. As somebody who lives this, breathes this, no pun intended, in this space at all times, can you tell me if you think that there's been progress over the last two to three years? I think there is. And I actually think the tipping point was the wildfire events Mm -hmm. that blanket the Bay Area that caused the famous Blade Runner days Mm -hmm. in San Francisco. I don't know if you... Uh, familiar with it? Oh, I'm familiar with Blade Runner. I've seen that movie more than a few times. Yeah. That's not a good thing for those who haven't seen it. Yes. So essentially the whole Bay Area was covered by this smog and which results in the whole city was covered this tint of orange the whole day. Wow. Right. It's a really... Apocalyptic. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I personally think that was a tipping point in terms of 
private investments on the climate. Before that, so we have been around for roughly nine years at this point. And as every single other startup, we have to do fundraising every two to three years, right? That's the typical fundraising cycle. So we had a tab of how exciting the private market is around this type of field. And I have to say before 2020, this is an area that have very few or little interest has been received from the VC sites. But since 2020, after that orange sky that blanketed Silicon Valley, the smoke choked the Tahoe, in which a lot of wealthier individual has their home at in the Bay Area. That results in explosion of private investment in this field. We are looking at year over year, 80 to 70% of growth in the VC's money. I think right now we are looking at $100 billion of dry powder there for the climate-related investment. And that's unthinkable. I think back in the 2020, early 2020, that figure is probably around 20 to $30 billion. So that's a huge change. And I think that gave this sensation of, okay, there's a lot of progress that's moving, the wheel start to churning. But at the same time, you know, when you're looking at kind of on a policy standing point and when you're looking at the macro level in terms of progression of emissions around the world, well, we just see a couple of quarters that the fossil fuel companies just post the biggest profit ever. Mm. That doesn't sound right. Like in the ages that maybe the fossil fuel should have been a history, right? Sure. So... Like on one side, you do see a very encouraging progress to be done here. And you are seeing, finally, the government is stepping up, especially in the U.S. with the Inflation Reduction Act, putting in tens of billions of money into this field. That's awesome. On other sides, you see a lot of the mentality of business as usual and a lot of the efforts to disguise the efforts to preserving that. So one of my unpopular opinion is that I think there's too much attention being paid to carbon sequestrations or carbon removal technology. When you look into the top kind of like the investment being made in that particular field, you see the top investors are Chevron's, Shell, and BP, and so on. And then you may say, oh, that's just their way to diversify their business. No. This is the way for them to do in business as usual so that they can continue in producing fossil fuel while claiming that I'm on a path to net zero emissions. But that's not what we should have done. Like This is not the behavioral change that we needed in order to reach, not to mention 1.5. 1.5 at this point is a must. Like It will happen. It's not when, but that three degree that we hold there to, I don't know, Like I don't think on that particular part. I don't agree with that. I don't think we're heading to the right direction. But on the other side, I definitely see tremendous efforts being done on the private investment side to boosting, you know, sure. A lot of the tax. Popular, unpopular. I appreciate that you're giving a voice to it. That's how a lot of progress in our nation and our world is made at the end of the day. Unfortunately or fortunately, when you have these seminal events that are on the news, that are on social media. And I've seen a lot of people say, okay, can we stop talking about this? Can we move on? Can we move on to the next topic? And at the end of the day, 
giving voices to those issues, right? Whether they be from an activism perspective, whether they be from a climate perspective, that's what actually makes real change. And unfortunately, sometimes it has to come at your doorstep, especially the doorstep of those that have a lot of resources who saw that apocalyptic orange sky and said, you know what, we need to put money behind this because it's at our doorstep right now. I'll give a quick example of that. I obviously have thought gun control is something our nation should get our hands around, but I live in Parkland. And it became a lot more of a concern and issue for me as it happened at the local high school where my daughter is eventually going to end up going. And so for me, that put faces behind it. That put families affected behind it. And that made me take bigger notice and stand up and put more voice around it myself. And I know that that's the case for a lot of people who are affected by any of these issues. So I think what you're doing is a super admirable thing. Certainly, there's a lot of progress to be made. But I do think that there's something to be said about money being put behind it. Because when money gets put behind the investment in these technologies and innovations, that can overcome a lot. And getting down to that net zero emissions and getting to that place where the world and the globe is going to be inhabitable for my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, I think that's a really important thing. And I have to say that I'm we're a lot better off now than we were 10 years ago, where I think our, a lot of heads were in the sand and there wasn't as much conversation about it. So I think that's incredible. I'm going to go a little bit outside of the climate tech space. I'm interested in your story. I'm always fascinated by founders' journeys. You have an amazing one. So you grew up in Shanghai, China, and then you ultimately came to the U.S. to go to Cal Berkeley. Great school. My brother went there. Why did you make that decision ultimately? And why Cal Berkeley? What kind of reached out to you and grabbed you and said, this is where I want to be and this is where I want to go? For me, I had this determination that I want to do something in the Ironman environmental space in the high school. And then back then, I think that particular field is, I think, much more developed and advanced in the US. Sure. So that's pretty much the reason. Yeah. That's a picture. Did you have your choice of schools? Like what, what stood out to you? About, I mean, it sounds like Berkeley has a great academic background, but did being in Northern California stand out to you because you knew you wanted to be an entrepreneur and there's a lot of Silicon Valley and entrepreneurs on that area? Did that stand out to you? I have zero idea Berkeley is facing Northern California Bay Area. I don't even know what <laughs> Bay Area was. For me, I just pull out the top 10 school of environmental studies on U.S. news and I apply all of them. Wow, how serendipitous. That's amazing. Yeah, and then luckily I was admitted to Berkeley, which is the number one in this field. That's amazing. And so you started Clarity Movement right out of school. Actually in the middle of the school. In the middle of school. <laughs> so you were actually in school and you started it. And I got to imagine there's at least some part of that entrepreneurial spirit that came out of being in the Bay Area and so close to Silicon Valley. I'm interested though, you did that so early in your career. I'm interested to know now that you've been doing this for eight years, is there anything that you know now that maybe you didn't know when you started this up that you wish you did? That I'm sure you went through your bumps and bruises to kind of get to where you're at at this point, but I'm interested to know what's information you have eight years later that you wish you had when you started back in the middle of school. When we started, there was a lot of trial and errors, but one thing I feel I really learned throughout the whole journey is Public focus is extremely important mm-hmm. for a company with limited resources. And I think in the beginning, we may have been a little bit diffuse in terms of what we're trying to do. We're trying to do everything. Mm-hmm. And I think for a startup, especially with limited resources, you need to put a laser focus on something. And I think we didn't really reach to that point until maybe four years into these journeys. And I think that could have saved a lot of times. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I'm also a firm believer of, I don't think it's the success who made you who you are, but the failures you have experienced. Mm. So I truly appreciate all the 
up and downs, especially the downs I have experienced in the past couple of years. Oh, like I was at last nine years while running and funding this company. And I think that making me a stronger entrepreneur nowadays. For sure. Fail fast. And, you know, I have a quote that is on my whiteboard that I see all the time that to keep me kind of focused, like you said earlier, there will always be more ideas than there will be capacity to execute. And I think as an entrepreneur, even though you don't mean this, you're trying to find what sticks, right? And you're like, I got all these ideas. I've got all this passion. I've got unlimited energy. I have limited resources, though. And so not only is focus important for you, not only is focus important for the people that you hire, it's important for your investors. They have to know what micro problem are you going to solve before you become AWS, right? Sell the books online first, and then we'll start talking about cloud systems and things of that nature. So totally agree with you on that. And then when you get to that critical mass, you have the opportunity to diversify and start to implement some more of those ideas. And I'm fortunate to be 12 years in and starting to get to that point myself. So talked a little bit about hiring. I know you know that's my passion. That's an area that's really important to me. And I always find for a founder, hiring is extremely personal. So is letting go of people sometimes too, because it's much different than when you're in this large enterprise Fortune 500 environment. Yeah. You take it personal, right? And you have to take it personal at the beginning because your first few hires, first five hires, first 20 hires, first 100 hires are naturally super imperative to your business. So I know you've done a lot of it over your nine years now. I'm interested to ask you, if you had an overall hiring philosophy for people that you want to bring into your organization, what would you say it is? I think it's to hiring someone can do the job much better than you can. Oh, I like that. So is there specific areas that like maybe you felt like you needed to augment right away or how did you identify those? Thinking about organization, right, as a whole. And if you keep in hiring people that's on part of you or sometimes lesser than you, then the productivity or the output of a whole organization will going down. <laughs> sure. But if you keep thriving to hiring someone that can do things much better than you do, then you are putting the company in an upward trajectory. And I think that's kind of in a very micro level, how I'm looking at this. But then on the other side, I think what's really important is the persistence behind it and the drives and the passions. But one thing I like is the experience in this field. I did not have the experience running a company. I did not have the experience building product now for us deploying 50 different countries, right? So, and I think that to having the right folks who has done this and know the best practices, they can truly accelerate the growth of the companies. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are the right people there that can put your company to the next stage. Got a couple follow-ups there. So I just thought about this as you said it. You know, I work a lot with large corporate organizations who do hiring. And something you'll find a lot with people hiring is sometimes there's an insecurity that comes there, right? They don't always want to hire people that they think might be better than them or might advance over them. And I find to be an entrepreneur and a founder, it's so freeing that you don't have to think like that because naturally you're the founder of the company at the end of the day. And so it almost leads to a little bit of you know, your insecurity is not the same as if somebody else is making career decisions for you, right? So you want to bring in the best and the brightest. And I don't know I ever thought about it that way until you just said it, but it's a very freeing thing to be able to do and really bring in the best talent because at the end of the day, that's what really can drive your company forward. I'm going to throw a little curveball at you. I got an interesting question here. So I know you're very humble, but I want to understand as a CEO of a company and somebody who's been doing this for the nine years, what are you the top 5% leader of a business doing? Is it your technical acumen? Is it your ability to motivate? Is it the financial acumen? Where do you feel like you stand out among maybe your peers of other founders? Persistence. Wow. Okay. So just showing up every day, huh? 
Yeah, I'm, I think the hardest part too is to stick what you're doing, even in the days that you feel like there's zero chance that you'll be still alive next month. And I think not only just persistent on your personal level, but also the ability to have your team stick together. Back in the days, of course, that's hasn't happened for the I was the last five years at this point. But there was time right in the earlier stage of the company. We don't know like if we can pay people two months down the road. And people know that. But the thing is people all our team members, especially all the ones from the early stages, stick together. And I think that's make or break a startup. Yeah, listen, been there, right? I've unfortunately has not been recently, but I've been there too. You learn a lot about yourself and your company when you're staring in the face of the abyss. So totally get that and understand that. And I've heard before that many entrepreneurs out there who get into their own line of work, they have the heart for this, they have the mind for it, but many don't last because they don't have the stomach for it. And you really need the stomach to be able to kind of overcome and the adversity and the fear of not being able to pay vendors or people or is your company going to shut down if you make this X wrong decision? And gosh, you're working late hours and not getting a lot of returns. So that persistence is such an important quality. I appreciate you bringing it up. All right. What about a memorable interview? Now, it doesn't sound like you've done a ton of interviewing yourself in terms of you interviewing for jobs. But what about a memorable interview maybe with somebody that you hired or something that sticks out to you? Anything come to mind? I think there's a couple of memorable interviews. One is with our head of software right now, and one is with our people ops managers. Oh, wow. And they are all hired we made in the recent last couple of years. But then I think the reason it stands out is that they're just like the perfect fit. Yeah. How soon did you know that into the interview process? Was it instantaneous or did it take time? I would say after maybe 30 minutes of chatting. At this point, I have already talked with him before, you know, briefly, but not having in a later stage of, of seriously considering, can they do this? And I think when you have the right people, you will know. Yeah. And then I think that feeling is just like, oh, they're too good to be true almost. And of course, when that things happen, you need to do your homework and making sure that all the reference checkout and everything. Sure. Yeah, once you have people like that, that makes a huge difference, I think, in terms of your organization. Yeah. yeah. Those sound like really amazing and memorable hires. It's funny because, you know, listen, I'm a big proponent of the structured interview. I think it's really important to have very much a lot of structure in place. And when you interview five to six to seven candidates, that you're all basing them along the same baseline. But at the same time, I think we've all been in this position. You're talking to somebody, maybe it's 15 minutes in, 20 minutes in, 30 minutes in, you're like, oh boy, I got it here. This is the person exactly what we need. And you go from interrogation into selling mode a little bit and getting them excited and enticed about the opportunity, or maybe even selling them out of it a little bit just to make sure that they're the right fit. So I think that's awesome. Been there before. I love that feeling. It's one of the best feelings in the world to me, especially as somebody that's constantly trying to add great talent to our company. Do you have a favorite question that you like to ask in terms of determining good candidates, great candidates? One of the questions I really love to ask, I was just a series of questions. Mm-hmm. It's really to trying to determine their true motivation behind applying this job. Are you looking for people who are motivated by the environment? Is that super important no matter what level, like an administrative assistant or anybody? It doesn't matter. You want them all to be motivated by climate and global warming and all these. They need to care. They need, they to, need care. to have the compassion. Okay. Yeah. I think that's kind of an X factor of our company in which I think I can say comfortably majority of our staff care about what we're doing. And I think that's super important because that drive your product and that drive your service, that drives the deliverable you are presenting to the customers. And I think that's 
not because you're doing this because that's your job, because you're doing something you care about. And I think that's absolutely, truly important to me. So I usually do this kind of a seven whys. It's kind of like, yeah, why you apply this position? And they ask an answer. And I would ask deeper, ask deeper, ask deeper and deeper. It's interesting you bring that up. I tell a lot of my journey in my life and my own self-discovery or how I really kind of come to what I believe about things is I do the five whys. You go seven, so you go two deeper than me, but that's a great way to get to the root of what you're thinking and what your motivation is. I did this because of, well, why? Well, then why? And then all of a sudden I can root it back to this experience I had as a 10-year-old kid and my father got mad at me because I didn't finish my dinner. And that's why I'm angry when there's wasted food at the table or something like that, right? So it's like when you can get to the root of something, I think it's really interesting. I think it's really important in an interview setting to understand that root because you're going to get a lot of superficial answers, a lot of trained and canned answers, but that's not really going to give you insight into the person. If you can dig in with those whys, that's really going to help you identify the right fits. That's correct. Why do you feel... No, I'm kidding. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by MSH. MSH is an innovative professional services and SaaS organization serving customers ranging from startups to the Fortune 100. A truly global company operating in more than 35 markets across three different continents, MSH partners with their customers to build the teams that solve their biggest and most complex business challenges. Find out more at talentmsh.com. We all miss every now and then, right? When it comes to a hire, right? And so if you look back at the people that you've missed on, is there a theme or something that you wish you would have done differently that maybe you didn't do? I think is actually trust more my initial instinct. Yeah. I think sometimes I'm not necessarily the hire manager, but I was brought in into the interview to judge on their other aspects, such as culture fit, such as their motivations and so on. But sometimes I would say, you know, like, if everyone else thinks this candidate is so great, maybe my judgment was wrong. Like, mm. and I would let that candidate go through. I think inevitably that does come back and then resulting us just wasting time and money for everyone. Right. So yeah, that's like one, one of the things that I kind of learned to, yeah. Like I love that. The needs to, yeah, the stick. I'm going to go back to what we just talked about though, because I think this is interesting. So when I talk to hiring managers and we're talking about the, how to, identify great fits and doing training with them or helping them really kind of get to the core of what they're looking for. A lot of people talk about that gut feeling and it goes back to those five whys again, right? Because I love your gut feeling, but what is that based on? Is it based on an experience you had with somebody similar? Is it based on X, Y, Z? Is it based on this? And then sometimes you'll realize that it might be, you know what, the group was right or maybe I was right based on how you get to the determination of that root cause. So I think that's a really important thing. Our guts are usually right, but I'm of the mind that we have to ask why is my gut saying this to me and get to the bottom of it? And I think you get great answers there. I'm interested because you obviously are in a company where you want people who are motivated and feel passionate about environmental circumstances and want betterment for the environment overall. Do you have any type of benefits or policies or a bunch of recycling bins in the break room? Like, How do you make that intrinsic and part of your company culture and so people see the importance of it on a day-to-day basis? I think one of the things we're really trying to emphasize is kind of to sharing the customer story mm. of how the customer is actually using our product and making a difference in the world. And I think that ability to connect, I think nothing more powerful than a real world story about how the clients is trying to, you know, improve their pollutions on the ground, right? With the sensors, like with our solutions. And I think that's profoundly powerful. 
And on, this, on the other side, as a company, I think the biggest contribution we can make at this point is chose to work remote. And I think that's the biggest contribution we can take to, to reduce our emissions. And I think as nowadays, there's so much debates regarding <laughs> remote and non-remote. I would say it's not easy. I definitely see the arguments of why on-site working is the way to go. But I also think that you know, a lot of argument against it's wrong as well. Like remote working can work if you especially putting a lot of the attention into communications, into building a trust and transparency of the companies. And I think that can be a very powerful thing if you do it right. And I think that ultimately that results in a very diverse group of peoples. We now at the point that we have 35 people and they are in five different countries, right? And a different time zone. And that's good for our customer base. And that's good in terms of bringing different perspective of the area of the world as well. And I think that can be very powerful. Wow. So I can only speak for my company, myself, and where we're at. I do see the both sides of it in terms of being in the office and how that helps sometimes. And being remote sometimes can be also beneficial in a lot of ways. That is legitimately the best argument I've heard on being remote 100%. You are a company that deeply cares about air pollution. And thus you are saying, even though there might be instances where I think it'd be best if we were in person for the company, we are going to live by what we believe. And for that reason, working remote is going to reduce emissions. And that's the right thing to do. I don't know what, if you brought that up to me in a debate, I would say back to you. If anything, I think we're giving some people who want to work remote some great arguments and leverage against their employers about how they're trying to protect the environment. I was thinking that a hybrid schedule is really the right way to go. Maybe it should be buy a hybrid for my employees and then have them protect the environment if they are going to come to work. So I think this is really good stuff. That's really interesting. I appreciate that take and that perspective. And it's definitely one that I had not heard before. So I love it. In terms of creating a candidate experience that's unique or maybe giving people a realistic job preview of what it's like to work at Clarity Movement, anything you do in particular, how do you make sure people understand what they're walking into, not just the questions that you want to ask them to determine if they're a good fit? I think working Clarity is, in certain perspectives, like working in every other startup. It may sound sexy and exciting, but when you're into the weeds, it's messy and chaotic Mm -hmm. and it's risky. But on the other hand, I can comfortably say is that we, Clarity as a company, are extremely mission-driven. We put our action in where our mouth is. Mm-hmm. We are looking at building a products, putting out the solution that can truly address the pain points of addressing air pollution, greenhouse gas emissions, and so on. And this is what we do, period. And I think if you're looking for to make a change and actually working somewhere that can truly make a difference, I think Clarity can be a great place for you. I love that. That's great. And hopefully people who are thinking about joining the company have heard that and that compels them to either apply or make sure that they get an interview set up to work with you and team. So I hope the right people are listening to that because I think that's super compelling. I want to take it a little bit away from the hiring for a minute and ask you a few questions more about your company and day to day a little bit. So I'm interested, you know, I ask people a lot of times, 
what's your day to day like? I asked a lot of C level and VP level people that, and I always get well meeting, 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 meeting. So I want to go away from that a little bit. I imagine you spend a lot of time with investors and your team, and in meetings and at conferences and with the technology. So I'm going to ask this a little bit of a different way. When you come home, Mar looks like you work from home. So maybe when you shut down the computer for the day and you feel like you had a super productive day, what would that day have entailed? I think it's the efficient use of time and also smart allocation of time. I think there's two parts of them. I don't like inefficient meetings, uh, especially in the remote settings. There is a true cost behind an unproductive meeting because it's not only you're wasting each other's time, you bring these fatigues into each other's. When there's a productive meeting, people actually get energized and they know what they need to do. If it's a boring meeting and a useless meeting, I think that's just going to drag everyone down, especially when you're not running a meeting properly. So that's to have very efficient meetings is very important. But at the same time, a smart allocation of time is that I always try to make sure I have the right chunk of focus time for me to get actually work done, to think about deeply about certain things. And I think I'm doing a better job of sticking with that and be setting that the right boundary. I think you can easily get into perception that you are productive, but you are truly not with just your whole day pack of meeting. But then if your whole day packs of meeting, how can you get any real work done? So I think for me, a productive day would mean that, yes, meeting communication is important, but it's definitely need to be efficient. And then at the same time, yeah, have a healthy time block, just sit there. Nobody else can schedule the meeting with you and you just do the work. That makes total sense. I want to go back to hiring real quickly because you're so technology savvy. Obviously, you're a technology company. I'm interested when it comes to hiring, do you leverage any particular types of technologies or software to help you hire or is your team using Excel or how do you go about leveraging technology to hire? We really love Airtable. I think it's a great tool as a candidate management system. I think it's very flexible and you can build into whatever you need it. I think a different role may require a different process and therefore that's, we think it's really powerful and I really like it. And then on the other hand, yeah, like for software interview, it's kind of the cliche where we would send them some early assessment tests that actually would have to have them recording the screen and everything to basically judge their skill instead of spending maybe three, two hours online sure. with them around that. That's that allocation of time you were talking about, right? Yeah, as the first filter, essentially. Sure. So that, you know, you truly spend this one-on-one kind of a virtual on-site with the candidates that you truly believe in. I've used Airtable, I think, for social media. Now, Airtable is not built for hiring, though. So you've used it because it's a powerful kind of organization tool. Yeah, it's essentially Excel, but it's much more powerful than that. Gotcha. You can build it to whatever you need. I use Airtable to manage fundraising. I use Airtable. We used to use Airtable as a CRM tool until we grow out of it. But I actually would say Airtable is a great tool if you just a startup, just starting. It can basically do everything you need to. I love that. What are you working on right now? Or are the companies working on right now that you're really excited about, that you're juiced about, gets you out of bed in the morning? There are a couple of things we're working on. I don't think we can really okay. say too much, but the, I can talk a little bit about the general direction. I think we're at a very, very exciting stage at Clarity. So earlier you mentioned about the company in the early stage and to kind of prioritize and focus on that one thing. And from there, can extend to what's next. 
And I think we are at a point that we have reached decent kind of a footprint in terms of where our solution at. And we are starting to have a stable and great customer basis that we can truly leverage on to deliver more value to them. So we started with a solution that only measure two air pollutants for the folks who don't know it's PM25 and NO2. So a particular matter that's more than 25 microns and the nitro dioxide. And they are probably the two most harmful air pollutants out there and therefore the most important to monitor. And now with this base, now we can actually leverage it to using that as a platform to adding on top of that, the additional measurement parameters for the customers. And the next big things we're tackling is climate-related pollutants. That's directly will impact the climate change in terms of global warming potentials. We are looking at black carbon, we're looking at CO2, we're looking at methane, and that we believe is can really exponentially increase our impact of the work we're doing. Yeah. I love that. Maybe there are some people that listen to that and they're not as familiar with some of the different terminology and the science behind it. But what's exciting about it is what it does for our planet, what it does for our longevity, what it does for our overall health. So I love that. Thank you so much for sharing it. And as more comes out, we're going to be excited to find out and kind of keep track and see these new developments. All right. Last question for me, David. So I want to ask you, we talked a little bit about as an entrepreneur, right? Focus and, and that being really important, but I'm interested for some of our earlier in career listeners, right? Who maybe going in, down an entrepreneur or maybe not, maybe they're going into a corporate role or they're going into a field role or they're going into something, right? What's one bit of career advice that you know now that maybe you didn't know when you first started your career and kicked off that you would share with our audience? Can't be the same. <laughs> like it's, it's not something I didn't know before, but I actually felt this is one of the advice I have heard that has been stay true throughout my journeys of clarity, which is purpose before passion before profit. Hmm. I love that. Explain. So purpose before passion before profit. So before the profit makes sense to me, but why purpose before passion? Because I think purpose is deeper than passion. Hmm. So you have to have purpose first, then you build passion, and then the profits follow. Yeah. Totally aligned with you on that. Quick story for me, as I got started in this space, I was in technology doing hiring. I got to be honest, I got into the hiring space because I thought it was an opportunity to leverage my sales and marketing background and be able to make incentive and compensation. So that's what drove me at first. And then over time, I realized by doing this and doing it well, I was really impacting lives. And I think I started to realize that helping people find great work changes their lives, their families' lives. You can change economies, you can change industries if you do it really, really well. So that purpose started to come and it wasn't just financially motivated at that point. And then I became passionate about it. I became feeling like I was standing on an island by myself, screaming at the rooftops how important this was for companies to understand. And I've never really been motivated by money since. I've always felt like that money is a byproduct of doing something great. And you cannot do something great without purpose, but then you have to have passion for it too. So I think that is really eloquently said by you. Certainly apt. David, I really appreciate you coming on. I know people are going to want to learn more about you. If they want to find out about Clarity Movement, any websites, any podcasts, any things that you want to plug and let us know about? Yeah, simply go to clarity.io. You can see the latest job opening and all the great work we're doing all around the world. You're hiring, I saw, right? On LinkedIn? Yes, we are hiring. We just launched a job post for product managers. And that's going to be our first full-time product manager role. 
be a big important role for us to hire and a very impactful one as well. I love it, David. I appreciate the time. I might follow up with you on that. It happens to be an area I'm passionate about too, but really excited to follow the journey and I appreciate you coming on and giving us a little bit to learn about you and the company. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you so much as well. Thank you for listening to Higher Learning with me, Oz Rashid. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode.